Praise the Lord. I pray that we all appreciate with the appropriate degree of thankfulness the great blessing and benefit of gathering together in Christ's holy name to consider his holy word and for what it truly is this day. Would you open in your scriptures to Galatians chapter 6 today? In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's holy word. Today's communion Sunday. Once a month, we celebrate communion. The Lord's table is here set before us this day, and we have been going through the book of Galatians in a series to accompany Communion Sunday. Next Communion Sunday, we'll have a closing message, Lord willing, as an overview and a summary of the book. Today, we come to the last chapter, as it were, the last several verses of this instruction, this letter, this epistle from the great apostle Paul to a church that deeply needed it, Galatia. The title of this morning's message It's kind of a modern term to give us an idea, an analogy of verse 11. The title is bold, all caps. Paul says in Galatians 6, 11, that he's writing with large letters from his own hand. And I believe that is in part to draw attention to the importance of what he has dictated to this church by his own pen. In this way, Paul has given them emphasis and drawing their attention or drawing their attention to his letter in this way, Paul's emphasizing the importance of this epistle. He's writing, as it were, in bold, in all caps, large letters, because it is that important. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to identify that we might share Paul's great concern for the gospel, and as it applies to the ongoing life of the church. I pray that today in this message we might identify and share Paul's great concern for the one true gospel and understand its absolute necessity in the ongoing life of the church. As you're able, out of reverence, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? This is Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Listen as the holy and errant word of Christ is proclaimed in your hearing today. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. From beginning to end, there's a tone of emergency that Paul adopts as he writes this church. Why? Because they are in great danger. Thus he closes with a benediction and a warning. The tone of emergency and necessary apostolic intervention carries all the way through 
the letter to the Galatians. Reminding you, uh, let me remind you of Galatians 1.6. Paul says in this language, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Again, this air, this attitude of incredulity. I can't believe that this is happening. Paul is anxious, concerned, and crestfallen in some sense, yet he has faith, even here, in a church, among a people who are losing touch, as it might appear from the surface at least, by being distracted and seduced by enemies of the faith, Paul nevertheless has confidence that the pure word of Christ, the pure gospel will offer correction and will give solid footing once again underneath this church that they might continue faithful to their Lord. Paul has dedicated particular personal attention to the church in this Gentile region. One commentator has noted that Paul's work in this regard was so pointed, so thorough, and so clear that even to this day, several, you know, 2,000 years later, the error of preaching circumcision as necessary for salvation seems ridiculous to our ears. Proving my point before that Paul's apostolic authority channeling the truth of God's holy word was sufficient to guard future error from corrupting the whole. This book, Galatians, preserves the purity of the gospel for us to appreciate today as the Spirit gives us ears to hear. The book continues to prove relevant in every age, however, in spite of this point, given that the enemy of our souls is crafty and finds new ways to deny the sufficiency of the gospel of grace alone, which saves us. The concerns that animated Paul, the apostle, were not limited to one church, not limited to one seductive teaching, that of the Judaizers, or even to one historical era, this infant age of the early church. The true grounding of our faith is a necessary buttress to stand in the battle waged against the truth in every age. We need the letter to the Galatians today as much as the church needed it then. Paul draws special attention to his words of warning and benediction to the Galatian church by pointing out that this letter was painstakingly written by his own hand. Again, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Some uh, scholars assume that this was extraordinary for Paul, that ordinarily he would make use of a secretary, sometimes called an amanuensis, someone who would write on his behalf. Others surmise that because of what we read in this book as well, chapter 4, verse 15, where Paul speaks of a debilitating eye condition, that he may have necessarily had to write in letters this big so that he himself could see them. Nevertheless, by writing in his own hand in large letters, Paul is pointing out that this letter is important, perhaps in part because of his, his vision was impaired through physical malady or affliction that he has suffered, yet emphasizing in addition how important these precious words were for the life of the church unto the glory of God and the proclamation of the unadulterated gospel. A man you could imagine struggling with vision, who has learned of the problems in this church, sitting down to, at great cost of his own convenience, write a letter on expensive materials 
and then give it to someone to deliver, um, not by way of UPS or FedEx, but in a very dangerous scenario and so forth? What issues were that important to make all these steps necessary? Well, certainly the gospel itself would rise to the level of that priority. And so this shapes some of the background and the context and the emphasis of the book of Galatians, leading me to this heading to organize our text today. Issues worthy of special emphasis, according to Paul. So what are three issues this morning worthy of special emphasis that we find, for example, in our text? Number one, anti-gospel motivations. Paul, by way of discernment, is identifying motivations, things that move us, influence us on a heart level that are against Christ, that are opposed to the gospel, that serve to undermine rather than to reinforce the truth of the once for all faith delivered to the saints. Secondly, issue worthy of special emphasis, Christ honoring gospel priorities. These go back to back. You can even pair them one against the other. Whereas on the one hand, Paul identifies a anti-gospel motivation. On the other hand, he identifies a Christ honoring gospel priority. And finally, let's consider this morning legitimate Christian fundamentals. There are certain aspects of Christianity that Paul uh, lists by way of enduring rewards, apostolic authenticity, and Christian identity as he closes this letter that are also issues worthy of special emphasis. So that's our outline today. Let us consider these points in more detail in our text. First, of special emphasis, anti-gospel motivations. Let's read verses 11 through 13 and notice what is animating, what's influencing these false teachers. We've come to know them as the Judaizers, those who are manipulating their audience, the Galatians who are tantalizing them, seducing them with an alternate teaching. Paul says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may be persecuted, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul is identifying anti-gospel motivations. What is the impetus behind a false teacher's uh, work to undermine and to twist the gospel to his advantage? Well, uh, Paul identifies at least three. I'll list them for you and then we'll explore them in context. Number one, external appearances. Uh, external appearances can be a powerful motivator, but it's an anti-gospel motivation if we care about the surface and not the inside. What comes to mind in this regard? Can anyone uh, among you young people, can you tell me um, who it was that play, paid careful attention to the surface? Jesus said, you guys ha are like whitewashed tombs. You're whitewashed on the surface, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Any of you kids know who he was talking to as he said that? Jesus was talking to the... Um, not exactly. Oh, who said Pharisees? That's correct. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, he was speaking to a group of religious elite that had anti-gospel motivations. They were concerned with external appearances. He compared them to a sepulcher, a tomb, whitewashed on the outside. You know, we put beautiful headstones, we engrave and, gra and polish granite 
the birth and the end date of our relatives and we place them out in this field. And even if you, and if you go to a cemetery today, you can understand this analogy. It's beautiful, manicured lawns, flowers carefully placed. But if you were to dig that place up, all you would find is bones, bodies, and various stages of decay. There is no life there. The external motivations and appearance, or external appearances were the motivations of these anti-gospel proclaimers. You could say it a little bit more uh, precisely, perhaps, by, or you could identify this concern a little more precisely by this comment, perhaps. Wheat and chaff are separated on the level of motivations. On the surface, it is often hard for you and I to tell who is following Jesus because they want to put on a good external show and those whose hearts are really transformed. This is, this is why the Bible calls us to rigorous gospel introspection. Look deep inside and determine honestly by the measure, by the rule, Paul uses that language in our text today, why you do what you do. Because wheat and chaff are separated on the level of motivations. When I was in Bible school, I've shared this story before, but it illustrates this very well. When I was in Bible school, there was a young man and I became friends with, and he wanted to be a worship leader. He would practice piano late into the hours of the night. Like many, you know, kind of conservative Bible schools, we had a curfew though. We all had to be in bed, I don't know, 10, 11. Well, he would get special permission from the RAs to stay up late. And what would he do? He would go to the library where a piano was set up and all by himself, he would play piano, worshiping the Lord, writing worship songs into the wee hours of the night. As often happens, you know, your college days come to a close. You go your separate ways. Three or four years pass and I wonder, Whatever happened to so-and-so? Well, I looked my friend up, tracked down his phone number, was able to get in touch. Where are you, man? How are you doing? What are, what's up? Said, well, I've moved out to Hollywood. I'm trying to get a role. And he described the movies, all of them horrific B-level movies uh, with all kinds of, uh, you know, unmentionable things around the theme. And he had just gotten done with this party he described as a naughty and nice Halloween celebration with basically drunken reveling and this, that, and the other. And I said, man, it wasn't that long ago where you were getting a pass, curfew passes to play the piano late into the night. What changed? What happened to you spiritually? And he said, I think I can explain it this way. When I was in high school, I went out for basketball. And so I tried to be the best basketball player I could be. When I went to Bible school, I went out for Christianity. So I tried to be the best Christian I could be. He's like, now I'm going out for the movies. I'm going to try to be the best actor I can be. So on the surface, when I was with my friend in college, by external appearances, he was way more righteous and holy than I was. I wasn't getting curfew passes to worship the Lord into the wee hours of the night. But underneath where the wheat and chaff are separated, the Lord knows the heart. He testified later to motivations that were based on externals, not the inside. Was he truly seeking to glorify himself or was he seeking to glorify God himself by his own admission? Last week, we covered the story of the Tower of Babel, the account in scripture. What was the primary motivation for the building of that edifice? To make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. What was the judgment that came upon this project? They were confused and they, they, their worst fears were realized. Why? Because they were pursuing that effort, that endeavor to make a name for themselves. Now this corresponds to Genesis 28 where we see a ladder 
that actually attaches heaven to earth prophetically in the dream of Jacob. And who is at the top? But Yahweh, the Lord. And what does he say? I am that I am. He announces his name. Now, this message teaches us that there is only one legitimate way of Christianity, of salvation, and the gospel. And that is the one where the Lord is glorified, where his name is upheld, where everything is according to his terms. And he will suffer no imposters, no false teachers, no scripture twisters to come and to change the terms. There is a lot more to the Christian life than external appearances. That's an anti-gospel motivation. This is what Paul gets at when he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to do X and Y. You could add anything there following that phrase. If someone would encourage you to do this in order to make a good showing in the flesh, this is a signal that on the heart level, they're concerned with external appearances. The real test of Christianity in every age and the motivations of the heart is the inner devotion. Think of a biblical example. The rich young ruler comes to Christ. And on the surface, this is a man of integrity, a man that's successful, respected in the community, cannot even think of a law in the external that he's broken. But the line of Jesus' questioning reveals underneath this impressive exterior, yes, indeed, a hard heart. And so the gospel truth that Christ proclaimed to this young man revealed the area where the wheat and chaff are separated deep inside the motivations. And so we have this anti-gospel motivation, inspiration, uh, that which inspires and moves and influences the false teachers identified by the discernment of the Apostle Paul so that we can be better equipped to judge ourselves and to judge other you know, self-proclaimed teachers even in our age. Second, anti-gospel motivation. Evade persecution, escape persecution, avoid it. In the same verse, verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So one of the motivations was that they would avoid persecution, the pressure of the world, the judgment of culture, the sideways glances of the worldview prevalent in their day and age. Now, does this sound familiar to our day? Can we relate to this idea? Are there pressures within the church? Are there things that we are tempted to adopt in order to curry more favor with the culture? In Paul's day, there were those who sought to impose upon the church different ideals, different interpretations of scripture, different philosophies, different worldviews in the interest of making common cause with the culture in the interest of avoiding conflict with the world. And at this level, we have an anti-gospel motivation. We want to build a bridge to the culture without giving them something so offensive as the message of the only truth way life is Jesus Christ. We want to lower the bar of entry to the kingdom of God so that we can, so that we can uh, basically assume or pretend or imagine that people are flooding into our churches, confessing faith in Christ. We seek to attract them by other means. But the, world, or, but the word of God would instruct us, Paul, in, his, in so many words, do not rob the gospel of its power to offend. The very first message of the gospel is a diagnosis of your hell-deserving sin. 
And that pointed message, proclamation of the holiness and perfection that God requires, which judges us immeasurably falling short of his glory is necessary in order for the gospel to have the stage one satisfied in order that stage two makes sense. Namely, we understand our sin. Secondly, to appreciate our great savior. We understand our sin is so wicked, depraved, and systemic that we cannot save ourselves. And even our trials to do so are themselves earning more debt against us, like trying to build our own Tower of Babel to preserve our own name. Yet when we realize that the gospel comes as a direct conflict with the message of culture, which holds out hope in any manner of false religion and escape and denial of the truth of sin and of the righteousness of God and what he requires and that there's an objective eternal standard of morality. There's a judgment day at the end of history. There's a God to answer to. There is a coming day of the Lord. When we acknowledge these things, it won't gain us any friends unless there is repentance. But this is the call, this is the command, this is the charge of the gospel, this is the position, this is the stance, this is the uncompromised plate line that is drawn in the true church. And as we look at the anti-gospel motiva- motivations that sometimes tempt us, Galatians gives us the ability to analyze, to discern, to search, and to see whether we, in the interest of, of gaining more favor with the world or avoiding persecution, the marginalization, the mockery, the sideways glances of the culture are actually compromising our Lord in doing so, and if so, let us repent. External appearances, evade persecution. Thirdly, anti-gospel motivation, affirmation through influence. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh ostensibly or on the surface, what the Judaizers were projecting is that they are great law keepers. And if you want to be a great law keeper like us, then you will realize you must be circumcised in order to be a Christian, in order to have, you know, uh, be, have assurance of salvation. It was in part due to your works. The sufficiency of grace was compromised in this message. But Paul looks underneath the surface and says, listen, Those who are preaching this thing, they're not motivated to keep the law. They don't keep the whole law. No, there is an anti-gospel motivation. They're seeking affirmation. They're seeking uh, the advancement of themselves and the boasting and boasting of themselves through their influence on you. In other words, people who fancy themselves as leaders, influencers, important individuals, they will teach something, they will try to persuade you, and as you agree to what they say, they consider that you know, a great gain for themselves, boasting in your flesh. At root level, they could care less if you maintain a a consistent Christian witness, including obedience to the whole law of God. These people, they do not even keep the law themselves. No, they are interested in affirmation that they reap through influencing others. They're interested in the affirmation that they gain through influencing others. This trumps pleasing the Lord on their list of values. Some people seek a great gain from being an influencer and influencing others. And those compliments that they get or uh, changed minds 
For them, that's a, a much higher value than pleasing the Lord. As we consider this anti-gospel motivation, we're reminded of the danger of a sort of Christian celebrity culture. A lot of times we consider our most respected leaders to be the ones who've sold the most books, the ones who have the biggest churches, the ones who are the most gifted in any number of things, whether it be music or speech or, you know, whatever their ministry might, quote, ministry might entail. But the danger of judging legitimacy on this grounds is that in, on this ground is that we might be adopting this value, that those who are the most credible voices are the ones who have the most influence. The devil has a lot of influence on people. The vast majority, I would say, of the world today is influenced to some degree by the devil himself. Does that mean he's a great leader? Is leadership judged just by influence alone? You often hear it say, it's said in our sort of uh, neutral leadership value culture that you know a good leader when you see people that are following them. The scripture would, has a far more precise definition of good leadership. It is not good leadership to be able to persuade masses to follow you straight to hell. It is not good leadership to be able to persuade whole church uh, you know, whole sections of evangelicalism to be distracted from the once for all faith delivered to the saints. No, we need to be more discerning uh, in our values of what good leadership is and look underneath the surface with the help of the scripture applied and to see whether we have adopted or we have uh, been or have, have been influenced by this anti-gospel motivation of affirmation through influence. These are issues worthy of special emphasis. Point number one, we just finished, that's to the negative. Now let's move to the positive. In contradistinction or set alongside those, the opposite of these, what does Paul affirm instead are true gospel priorities? Point number two, Christ honoring gospel priorities. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There are perhaps three Christ-honoring gospel priorities that Paul introduces to counter the corruption in Galatia. Number one, boasting in the cross. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Number two, crucified to the world and the world crucified to you. And number three, a new creation. These are priorities that are issues worthy of special emphasis. There are many passages of Scripture, we won't go to them all, but I do want to touch on this one, that where Paul expands in, in great detail these concepts he's hitting by way of overview to the Galatians. Here's one. You might, have a, you might uh, raise this question in your own mind. What could Paul possibly boast about? He answers this question for you in Philippians 3. He says, verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Interesting choice of language there. Reminds us, does it not, of those, the false teachers who taught by mutilating the flesh, altering one's external, that is today, to say principally, somehow uh, is, you know, a credible gospel proclamation. 
He says, verse 3, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that was something that was valued in his cultural context, was it not? Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, so he is of noble birth, he goes on, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, these are values that his religious culture celebrated at that time. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But note verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Some may translate dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So in this passage, we have two columns. On the one column, we have the anti-gospel motivations, things that we might boast in if we just were to live our life according to the values of our day. And in Paul's era, it was this, of Phariseeism, this impeccable birth, this history, this scholarship, this influence, this zeal, and so forth. And he says, of all these things, I count them lost. I do not judge my self-worth upon any external appearances. But on the other side of things, the other column, we have what Paul truly boasted in, if you will. He boasted in the cross. What is boasting? Here's my definition. Posturing yourself to direct glory to you. Posturing oneself to direct glory to yourself. You know, we brag about our accomplishments, or sometimes it's more subtle. We post them on Instagram, if you're into that. We kind of uh, project or we uh, publish different things about ourselves. And if we analyze our motivations underneath, oftentimes we're guilty of doing so to direct glory to ourselves. This is what boasting is. What is boasting, therefore, on the other side of things, what is boasting in the cross? Boasting in the cross is directing the glory to Christ. It is to say, without that moment that I had nothing to do with, the self-giving of the Son of God on the cruel cross of Calvary, I am nothing, I am dung, I have nothing by way of prideful boasting, nothing by way of accomplishment, nothing by way of legacy to boast in at all. So boasting in the cross is directing the glory to Christ alone. It is actively directing glory to Christ. Now, I just had a cool illustration of this that I came across this week. So the story goes back two years. I went to uh, Phoenix with Phil and I were there. We were at a conference. And uh, we spotted this guy who really stuck out in the crowd. You might ask why. Because his face was covered with very uh, crude tribal tattoos. And underneath his scalp, which was shaved, was um, like implants, body modifications. So he had a series of knobs that went down both sides of his head. Think of like a budding stegosaurus. And then he had gauges in his ears that, you know, you could just about fly a paper airplane right through. Um, and anyway, now aside from that, dude was wearing a suit, 
had a bow tie and so forth. So I'm not one to take selfies, but in this case, I was willing to make an exception because I thought, I can't pass up this opportunity to document this moment. I've never seen somebody, you know, that looked quite like this before. I'm sure I'm not the only one that he's had to have patience for in this regard. So I go up to him. I was like, hi, my name's Ken. I'm like, um, it looks like, you know, you've got a story and I'd like to get to know you a little bit, see what it is. We're at a Christian conference. And do you mind if I take a selfie? Because my kids are not going to believe the description unless I document this. So he let me take a selfie. He was gracious enough to put up with this idiot, you know, that wanted to, that wanted to objectify, you know, this weird body. Well, anyways, long story short, he lived a lawless lifestyle, as you might imagine, before Christ was radically saved. Now, I was reminded of this individual because I was listening to a podcast this week on cross-politic, and they were interviewing this very guy. I said, oh, Pastor Callie has written a book. And I thought, Callie, that name rings a bell. And I'm like, I'm going to listen. And from Texas, I'm like, okay, that's two. If they mention anything about his appearance, I'm going to say, this is the dude that I met. Then, so he gets on, you know, the interview or whatever, and they open it up, they're breaking the ice. And they say, well, judging by your picture here, Callie, this is something similar to me, I'm thinking you have a story. And uh, this is how Callie responded. He said, I have the same story that every Christian has. I was a sinner saved by grace. The Lord changed my heart, opened my eyes to the truth, and now I live for him. Period. End of sentence. That's all he said. Uh, he's a pastor of a Reformed Baptist church that meets in a park. He, most everybody in his church, in his very small congregation, has been saved off the street from under a park bench or out of drug addiction. He has given his life to the furtherance of the gospel, trying to rescue babies at abortion clinic. He once sought to destroy. His story goes on and on. But for the purposes of that interview, this is all he said. I have the same story that every Christian has. I was a sinner saved by grace. The Lord changed my heart, opened my eyes to the truth, and now I live for him. I appreciated that answer because it pointed the glory to Christ. You know, a more straight-laced Christian kid like myself, in one sense, might think, well, my testimony isn't as interesting as Callie's. I don't have, you know, evidence of my lawless lifestyle in knobs underneath the skin on my skull or anything like that. Or on the other side of things, you might think of yourself, you know, better than someone who lived a life like that or whatever. The point is, you should not boast in what your old life was or what your old life wasn't externally on the heart level. Every Christian can relate, every true Christian can relate to the life-transforming power of the gospel. And Cowley kept his answer very simple. And in that regard, I felt it was a good example of directing the glory to Christ, not to his old lifestyle, not to his, in, you know, not to his uh, Facebook profile or something like that, simply to Christ. Christ honoring gospel priority, boasting in the cross. Secondly, crucified to the world. Paul says, again in verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. An attending passage we won't get to today. You can mark in your notes for further study. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. Like Philippians 3, this is one of those passages where Paul expands this idea of what it means to be crucified to the world. 
What is the world in Paul's view? In context, you might interpret it this way, the fallen realm with all its carnal appeal and corruption. The post-fall world, the reality of our individual sin and the reality of the corruption that expands, expands out even into our, our environment. This is the world. From the world's vantage point, you know, from those who are, this is the air they breathe, the corruption of an environment of fallenness. Uh, convincing and coercing Paul away from Christ w- was like seducing a dead man. You know, you could only, if you were, let's say, a Zeus worshiper, you came up to Paul on the, pre- on the street and he's preaching Christ. Who would influence who, do you think? Who would have a better shot? Paul had been so thoroughly transformed in his mind and in his convictions and on a, this faith heart level that you would sooner convince a dead man um, than to convince Paul to give up his Lord Jesus Christ for Zeus worship. And so this is what Paul means by this crucifixion to the world and the world crucified to me so thoroughly detached from worldly values that a death is the best way to describe the same way death separates people from day-to-day life. So a certain death has taken place, metaphorically speaking, to separate us from the world. That is the fallen realm with its carnal appeal and corruption. And so let us be crucified to the world. Let us live like death separates us from the day-to-day life of a fallen world. Why? Because this is a Christ-honoring gospel priority. And finally, new creation. How is this even possible? It's because something fundamentally changed in Paul's heart. Verse 15 speaks of this. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul was circumcised on the road to Damascus, but he was dead set with face set like flint to persecute the body of Christ, to incarcerate, if not kill, more Christians because they had violated his understanding of what Judaism meant. So it didn't matter that he was circumcised. He was deceived. He was zealous for this work of undermining True, the true faith in Christianity. He had denied his Messiah who had came according to the prophets and he was making war with Jesus. Jesus answers him, intercepts him, intervenes. He confronts him on his journey and says, how long will you kick against the goads? At that moment, Paul's conversion, something fundamental happened. Did his circumcision or uncircumcision mean anything at that time? No. What happened was Paul became a new creation. He was blinded. God miraculously gave back his sight. His heart was changed. He went from pursuing the church to kill them to trying to spread the church as far and wide as he could through his missionary journeys. This was evidence of regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of this as well. When the Bible speaks in this kind of language, new creation, born again, it is uh, using analogies of birth new life to describe the fundamental change on the inside whereby we are made new. When this happens to you, it gives you the ability to discern the anti-gospel motivations and to repent of them. It actually gives you the ability by God's grace to walk out in a manner worthy of the call. Yes, even law keeping, walking by the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh as we've already read in Galatians 5 and 6. This is a Christ-honoring gospel priority, recognizing the newness of regeneration, the newness of Christ's work in ransoming us, how the Holy Spirit himself 
is dispatched, the third person of the Trinity, to fundamentally change the person on the deepest level possible to make them a new creature. Thirdly, this morning as we close, and more briefly, legitimate Christian fundamentals. These are issues worthy of a dangerous journey carrying a letter, issues worthy of special emphasis such that a man has a difficulty with eyesight, is unaccustomed to writing in this painstaking fashion, does so in large letters, anti-gospel motivations by way of discernment, Christ-honoring gospel priorities by way of standard of repentance, and thirdly, some legitimate Christian fundamentals. First of all, the nature of enduring rewards. So if the adulation, if external benefits of boasting in oneself are to be shunned in this new Christian life, what are the virtues and the values? What are the motivations that we should seek for? Paul lists them in three words, peace, mercy, and grace. Verse 16, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Jumping over a verse, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I wonder if we value peace, mercy, and grace more than the corrupting pursuits and values that this sinful world promises us. Grace, very legitimate term, very apropos to the context as the sufficient grace alone gospel was challenged by the Judaizers. Paul opens his book in a similar fashion, 1-3, grace to you and peace. There's those two words again, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So you see in that gospel summary that Paul is reiterating the values and the message that he's opened his book with in this bookend now as he closes. These are the enduring rewards. Peace. Not the kind of peace that, you know, hippies protest for with the cessation of human war, although as desirable as that might be. A deeper peace still. A coming to terms and reconciliation with the animosity, the enmity between you and a just God. This is the kind of peace that can't be purchased by any of the works of man. And this is the kind of peace that will, if you do not have it, will separate you uh, from future hope of glory, eternal life, and the possibility of peace forevermore. And this is the peace that Paul speaks of when he identifies, calls the attention of the church to the price paid to purchase it, and tells them, keep this as an enduring reward and a value. Seek this above the boasting or the adulation of men and the things that you might otherwise boast in and all of the distractions, the external appearances. No, reject those false values and replace them with peace, related mercy and grace, unmerited favor, and the Lord, the disposition of a holy God towards man being one of love because one has died in our place in order that we might have peace, communion, fellowship, friendship, relationship with a just God. These are the enduring rewards. These are the blessings of the true Christian life. And Paul says as much and also connects them to the gospel. These are in stark contrast to the perverse motives of the Judaizers, the false teachers. False teachers do not seek to 
keep as priority mercy, grace, and peace with God. No, there's all kinds of competing sinful influences that take their place. Paul says, by way of apostolic authenticity, verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And this again, when you compare it to circumcision, Paul is saying that there is a different legitimate standard, a a different Christian fundamental entirely than some arbitrary outward sign or marking. There is evidence in his own dedication to the gospel that he is willing to suffer for Christ's name. There's a long list of what Paul went through in other passages, and you could cross-reference that on your own time. Suffice it to say that Paul no doubt had whip scars on his back as he wrote this. Perhaps he still dealt with... um, you know, throbbing pain from a broken bone that had yet to heal while he was being stoned outside of a pagan city. Perhaps he woke up with night terrors because of the trauma of traveling through shipwreck and danger, being pursued by armies and could be arrested at the next turn in the road at any given moment. Paul says, these things are the mark of legitimate Christianity, not a mere external rite a religious practice like circumcision. In summary, we could say contrary to circumcision, assurance, confidence. If works are contrary to circumcision, which represents in the context here, works-based assurance, confidence, and affirmation. Paul says authentic Christianity is measured according to a confession and a conviction rooted in Christ and his redemptive work alone. An orientation of heart and life scorned by the unbelieving self-serving world, yet enduring even through persecution unto martyrdom by virtue of a supernatural hope. Let me read that again. In contrast to circumcision, which represents works-based, external assurance, confidence, and affirmation, authentic Christianity is measured according to a confession and a conviction rooted in Christ and His redemptive work alone. It is an an orientation of heart and life that is scorned by the unbelieving, self-serving world, yet endures even through persecution unto martyrdom by virtue of a supernatural hope. So this is one way, perhaps in a paragraph, you could summarize the message of Galatians As we come to a close in this book, who are the believers who truly relate to Paul's words? They are, their Christian identity is described as the Israel of God. They are those who follow the gospel rule, and they are brothers in Christ. And as for all who walk by this rule, that is the standard of the gospel, that uphold the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostolic teaching expounded by the authority of the apostles, all who walk by this rule, those share legitimate Christian identity. These are the ones who are also described as the Israel of God, those who are in true unity, in true communion, in true covenant with the Lord, as he has expounded in Romans chapter 2, because they embrace his Messiah. And these are also, thankfully, in Paul's closing words of comfort and encouragement, brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. 
Again, Paul emphasizing the family bond that joins all who are truly in Christ. As we transition to communion, it strikes me that the Galatians needed the message of the Lord's table, did they not? They needed to realize the intent of this ordinance that we have before us this day. What is that intent? That we might remember and proclaim the exclusive ground of our salvation, the precious price that was paid to purchase our hope, and the only way of salvation, the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. As we partake in communion this day, if you are a believer in this room, it is a way that you can boast in the cross. It is a way to direct glory to Christ Jesus because his blood was shed for the remission of your sins. Remembering these verses that Paul opened his letter with, who gave himself, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us transition in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your patience toward us who have confessed and believed in Christ. We thank you that your word serves to correct us when our mind is distracted, when our feet can sometimes slip from the foundation of our hope. We pray that the proclamation of your word in our ears today would return us to Christ alone and that we would seek to follow him and by this rule of the gospel order our own lives that we might direct boasting away from ourselves and give the glory to Christ. Lord, today, as your word has been proclaimed, I pray that you would use it to draw any lost within its hearing unto salvation. I also pray that as we approach your table this day, we would do so in reverence, in awe, in thankfulness, in relief, in fear, and in praise for the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Would you use the, these moments to seal upon our hearts the assurance of our salvation that we might be a better witness and testimony to you, pointing as your servant John did, behold the Lamb of God. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.